this case is about our very survival, our very our opportunity to be able to elect representatives who know us, understand us, who are, are from our communities that will represent our interests, our family's interests in the United States Congress. Welcome in Alabama Politics This Week, Josh Moon and David Person. We are, uh, man, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. We should we should charge for this shit. Oh, we should charge for this because this is a good show. We've already it recorded is. the interview and we know it's good. So uh, yeah. that's uh, uh, that's the reason why I say that because we, uh, we have an attorney uh, and a plaintiff who are part of the uh, lawsuit against the state over uh, redistricting. And they are going to be at the Supreme Court making oral arguments uh, next week. So uh, we're going to talk to them about what's involved in the case, what's at stake, what we, what might happen going forward. All information for life. Uh, you know, I, that's I got to tell you, man, I, we shouldn't be giving this away. We just shouldn't. It's because <laughs> where else are people going to get it? They gonna call these people themselves. They're not going to do that. Well, you know, you're not going to do that. You're not. Yeah, you, you know, we time. are. We are a unique outlet here in this state. We're unique. You know, nobody I, else is doing what we're doing, addressing Alabama politics from this perspective, and not just from this perspective, but at this level. I think. I think yeah. we dig pretty deep. Yeah, well, I think we. I think we do. Uh, and yeah. listen and. I'll, I'll say this as well. I think a lot of times people uh, kind of put try to put it in a box sometimes and say that it's you know democratic based or liberal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. It's it's yes. We have a a viewpoint that's certainly unique from the idiots who are screaming at you on radio that you hear inside the doctor's office or you know the tire change right. place for you know ten minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, so yes, certainly we're left of, of whatever that stuff is. But it's 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 not left or right. It's it's basic common sense. Most of it, you know, that's yeah, what I we do so. here. Is we offer things like like this. This what you're gonna hear. I mean, certainly it's it's from the side that says the maps are wrong. But you know who else says the maps are wrong? Two Trump appointees said the maps were wrong, okay? So you can say it's partisan if you want to, but these guys would disagree or the basic facts would disagree with you. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that uh, we touch on a lot of topics. And I'll tell you this. I hear um, from a lot of people uh, in that, that currently work in state offices um, that, that work for people who are elected from the right, from some, hmm. some of them from the very far right. And they, they listen a lot. Uh, they listen and they mostly agree with, with some of the things that we talk about on here. Mm-hmm. They agree that some of the people that they're having to deal with on a daily basis are batshit insane and that the mm-hmm. process in which we're, we're going about uh, electing people and and some of the rhetoric that's being used now is it, driving towards the cliff and and we need to reel it back in and and you know so uh, yeah. I don't think that we are are all that partisan honestly yeah I, I, and I agree I don't think I I think there is certainly there's a partisan element to it but I think over our, the overarching theme is not about you know uh, espousing a certain partisan point of view. It's mm-hmm. really more about 
you know, what makes sense, what, what's fair, what's just, what makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty obvious, you know, and you can see it's right in front of our, all of our faces that, you know, conservatism, as it is currently being presented to us as a nation, mm-hmm. is no longer uh, monolithic. It's no longer sort of one thing. It's become, you know, at least two things or maybe more than two things, two manifestations of it. And the, and the manifestation that has been driven by, um, you know, the tone and the logic of um, and the and the and I'll even argue the motives of Trump and his people. Um, it, it's just it doesn't it doesn't square for a lot of conservatives, people who are conservative, more you know who are as far to the right perhaps in some cases as you and I might be to the left, but it still doesn't square with them. They understand yep. there's something else going on here, and yep. it's something that's insidious. It's something that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And and it's not about party. It's not about even ideology, really. It's just about decency and morality. I mean, yeah. you know, who, you know, just going back to, and I know that um, we got some other topics to get into. Nah, but so, hell, you know, this but, is more important. This is about us. This is more important. <laughs> but, but going back to what we talked about last week with, you know, uh, congressional candidate Dale Strong, you know, saying, uh, they ought to be sending 50 bus loads of, of, of migrants uh, mm-hmm. up to uh, Delaware. I mean, that is so just Callous. brazenly, disturbingly cruel. Yes. And yes. irresponsible. And, and illegal. And yet this man, you know, has got a very good chance of being uh, the next congressperson for the 5th Congressional District of Alabama. My yep. God. Is that the kind of sentiment that we want to send up there? You know, I, I final thing I'll say on this, Josh. I listened to Richard Shelby. I, I don't. I, I think I mentioned this last week. I mentioned. To, I, I listened to Richard Shelby. I was in the audience when Richard Shelby was in town uh, for, at the invitation of the uh, the Huntsville Chamber of Commerce for what is called the Washington Update, and you know mm-hmm. he does it. For uh, here in town and and sessions uh, when well I don't I don't think Tupperville's done one yet at least not to my recollection but you know the senators do it and our and our congressional representative for this district would would do it so of course Mo Brooks has done it Shelby gets up there and it's no secret he's a Republican it's no shocker that he's going to advocate for Republican candidates which he did. But he didn't get up there and say cruel, irresponsible things. You know, he didn't get up there and talk about how great it was that migrants were being dumped at the at the at the at the at the residence of the vice president or and that 50 other. You know, he didn't endorse Dale Strong's point of view that, you know, uh, we ought to be busing 50 migrants up there, you know, 50 buses of migrants up there. Now, did he endorse Dale Strong? Yes. But that's what you expect. But he Mm -hmm. didn't endorse his is crap, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's what's to me, that's what is, is so sad about where we are today. You know, 
Uh, this man, you know, I don't agree with Richard Shelby on most things. Neither do you. But you know what? The guy's a statesman. I have a yeah. lot of respect for him. He's a statesman. He's a class act. Even yeah. when he's being partisan, he's classy about being partisan. And I can respect that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what um, what separates out people like Shelby and and some others, uh, and, and there are some other Republicans that I, you know, that I I wouldn't say this is, I don't know if admire would be the the right term, but uh, you know I, I I kind of appreciate their the way they handle themselves. I guess would be mm. the best way to say it is, you know, I think what separates them is the fact that they are not insecure in their abilities. Uh, that they are not, they don't. I, you know, I, I, to me, a person like Dale Strong switching to this rhetoric that he has, you mm-hmm. know, and then, you know, the whole shtick of Mo Brooks and Barry Moore and, you know, some of these others. Like Jerry Carl was on talking about, you know, fentanyl and Halloween candy. And I mean, just, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, you know, all, all these people is is the fact that they need that level of stupidity to draw attention to themselves because they are wholly inadequate to lead in any other way. That's, that's the difference. I mean, that's the, you know, Richard Shelby is, is comfortable enough in his ability to get in there uh, at, at the highest level of government and to affect policy in such a manner that he doesn't need horseshit. Mm-hmm. statements, you know, just nonsense. Oh my God, did you hear what Richard Shelby said? He doesn't need that to draw attention to himself uh, at, because he is wholly inadequate in, in the areas that he's supposed to be adequate in. Uh, and, and that, because that's what they're doing. They're, they're covering up their inadequacies uh, at governing because none of them have any policy ideas. But anyway, tell, tell me Barry Moore's policies. Okay, tell me, tell me what policies he's got for fixing inflation or the border crisis or I mean, you know, like legitimate, legitimate fixes, not high in the sky. Let's put everybody in a cage in Mexico and make Mexico pay for it. You know, that's not realistic, you know, stuff. I'm saying realistic policies that would work with the other side of the aisle. They they don't have them. And so Mm -hmm. they say these insane things because it gets them attention from the right people. And, and this is, you know, and and Richard Shelby doesn't need that, you know, to a large extent, this is the same as Mitch McConnell, who I loathe as a human being. I loathe him as a human being, but he also doesn't necessarily have to say just outrageous, crazy things because he knows that he is in control of stuff and he knows how to manage people. You know, somewhat I would argue that Mitch McConnell is probably the greatest manager of people that I have ever witnessed in my life. Mm. Uh because he has managed the hell out of a group of clowns um in in that party <laughs> to the extent that he gets them in line and, and gets them to vote for things and, and to do things that they know they should not be doing, but they do it anyway because it it maintains that power structure. And so he has managed listen, they they've managed to hold on to uh, you know a, a good portion of Congress despite the fact they have zero policy ideas. Yeah. All they've done is oppose shit for the last 20 years. They've done nothing else. I mean, name the policies that they've yeah. got. They don't have any. And so that's, you know, uh, that's, the, I think, the difference between Richard Shelby and, and these people. And and that's the reason why I think we, we've, we've become to you know, this point where we've gotten to this point now where it's just 
uh, you know, we appreciate people that do the bare minimum, mm-hmm. <laughs> just their jobs, you know. And mm-hmm. oh God, uh, sad, sad state of affairs, man. Yeah, it sad. is. It is. It is. Uh, all right. Listen. Speaking of sad states of affairs, uh, the campaign for adolescent sexual health in hmm. the state of Alabama. Uh, which is a tiny nonprofit that employs one and a half people, um, uh, is uh, came under some fire this week from a right-wing propaganda site whose name we're not going to mention. Uh, well, I won't mention it. You can mention it. Hell, I'm not going to tell you what to say and what not to say. But uh, <laughs> if we mention them, you would uh, you would increase their uh, the people who are aware of them by yeah, I'm not at least their name. ten times. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they, this group does have, because of who they are associated and funded by, uh, they are, you know, they have some, I wouldn't say influence, but they get attention from, from some others because they provide some funding and they provide some, you know, some people that, uh, uh that go on and help some of these crazies that are in our state. Um, and so this group that uh, it purports itself to be a media outlet, but it's not. It's nothing more than a, than a right-wing propaganda machine, really. And it's, it's not even a very good one. Um, and they, they took on sex education. Yeah, okay, so, so the headline was something along the lines of State Superintendent Eric Mackey and Public Health Officer um, uh, Dr. Scott Harris are part of radical sex education group, you know, and they were talking about the campaign for the adolescent sexual health. Um, and what that group does is they provide resources for educators, for parents, for counselors, for uh, teen mentors, uh, you know, and, and they have a website that essentially breaks things down into groups. And then that you can go into the group or whatever that you want. And there are a list of other groups out there that provide certain resources for kids. And it's all about uh, the one that got the most attention, just to, to give the example, which is the, the video that was embedded in the uh, propaganda sites uh, story about this uh, mm-hmm. site, was uh, it was about porn and how you should not use kids should not be using porn as sex education, um, right. that they should they should take regular sex education and understand that what they're seeing in porn movies is is fiction. That it's it's you know high production uh, of of people that are unrealistic for regular life and in situations that are wholly unrealistic and there are things that you should not uh, expect uh, out of sex at, from right. that you Seek should see in porn. Right. Yeah, and, right. and so the video, which is of cartoon, it's animated characters. Uh, on this video that they have to explain this to kids. And that video has naked cartoon characters, you know, on there. Oh my God, naked cartoon characters. Um, But but can we clarify one thing? Sure. Okay. So naked, meaning they don't have clothes on, but there's Mm -hmm. no genitalia. Oh yeah, there is. Yes. Oh yeah, there is. Yes. Yes. It's, I mean, it's a sex ed. Uh, It's a sex ed video you know it's for it's to now there's no sexual acts occurring 
Oh, so you do see the genitalia of the cartoon oh, yes, character? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. yes, yes, you do, you do. But again, again, these are not these are not necessarily videos for kids to go. No, no kid is going to the. You know what right. I mean? No kid is going to this website right. on purpose to see these videos. Right. What they are for are for uh, for parents or other people to take and to watch with children to educate them on the realities of life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are kids that have questions. They're, you know, the, you're going to run into situations as a parent, as, as whoever. Um, and these are videos at, that you could take to help supplement a conversation that you're going to have with your child about right. these certain things. You go in and find your 11 year old watching porn one day. You go, okay, look, here, we got to have a conversation. Here's this video right. that could help you with this conversation that you're going to have. Is it uncomfortable? Is it, a little weird. Yes, but all of those conversations are. I mm-hmm. mean, my God, you mm-hmm. know, and but again, this is a, a resource that is being provided for these people. OK, and Scott Harris and Eric Mackey were part of the board by virtue of their positions. Uh, this because this group, um, the campaign for adolescent sexual health started out as the campaign against teen pregnancy several years ago. And so all of these people were on this board and they, you know, had, had did a number of projects against uh, that, that helped try to lower the teen pregnancy rates because Alabama has one of the worst and still does. And then at some point, uh, I believe during the Obama administration, they got more federal funding and they decided to expand their reach and and expand their goals to include you know sexually transmitted diseases and all these things and so they they attacked a number of different areas not just teen pregnancy uh, but you know all of it kind of related and so that's where this group is and that's what they do and really this was not about them it really wasn't it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with them uh, you know, it was presented out of context and as though, you know, these these people were uh, providing these pornographic videos or things to their young, young children uh, mm-hmm. to be viewed or that they were uh, being presented by teachers in classrooms. And they're not. None of those things are not uh, right. are, are not happening. Those things are just not they're not happening. Mm-hmm. And but it didn't matter what they were trying to do was attack Eric Mackey and public education. And to attack Scott Harris, who I should be pointed out, is currently being sued by the group that owns the propaganda site for COVID restrictions uh, that that were in place. So, you know, some might call that a conflict of interest. I don't know. You know, you make your own (laughs) determination there. Uh, But. That's what the goal was here was to do that and what and also to draw you know out these uh, to say these crazy things about uh they made a big deal about the recommendation from this group that mm-hmm. that children or kids students uh seek out adult mentors you know and 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 talk to adults about things that they are confused about or that they're concerned with. And and they acted as though what that group was was doing was trying to get kids to go away from their parents. Right. You know, and and to and that the that and then, of course, of course, we all know uh, uh, because school teachers are 
pretty much all perverts, that the school teachers would probably mm-hmm. tell them some really crazy things to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to ignore their parents and to just go have sex in the bathroom. Um, so you know, this this seems to me like, Josh, it's part of a movement that has existed for really the bulk of my life. I'm going to say probably f- easily 50 years, mm-hmm. the bulk of my life. And that is this movement where the only discussions that right-wing conservatives tend to want to be had about sex are discussions that they are leading and defining and -hmm. determining. Mm -hmm. They don't want any other public discussions of it. Right. Uh, Not in churches, not in schools, not in any part of the public square. They don't want any public policies to exist that, that they have not sort of predetermined uh, you know, and, and it's basically, um, really, I mean, if we're just going to get right down to it. It's usually coming out of some religious, uh, some particular religious point of view. Mm-hmm. So um, the problem with that is, as I see it, the problem with that is, is first of all, and this is this is really now on the front burner of political debate and conversation today because of the rise of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the problems with this is that um, the church should not be dictating to government yeah. or to governmental uh, entities what is happening. Right. That, that just shouldn't be happening. The church should, uh, the church can certainly participate you know, in government through its members as voters and the church can lobby if it wants to lobby, just like anybody other entity, any other entity can lobby. But to actually have the ability to dictate policy and procedure, that's a problem. That's a problem. And um, and um, it's a problem because you know, for a lot of reasons, we don't need to get into all that now, but but we we kind of touch on these things in this podcast anyway. Yeah. So anybody that listens understands why I'm saying it's a problem, I would assume. But in addition to that, um, Josh, as you pointed out in your column very effectively, these policies and these practices that these entities want to continue to push onto the public school system. And 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 onto public school families, they ain't working. <laughs> not they even a little not bit. Working. Yeah, yeah, they're not we doing got, anything. Yeah, we got the fifth highest teen pregnancy rate. We got yes. the fifth worst, the fifth worst teen STD rate. We've got the uh, one of the highest sexually active rates among teenagers in the country, and we've got the highest highest rate of. Teens watching porn out there. Yeah. I mean, it's we we you couldn't be worse than we are. I right. mean, you know, uh, it's yeah. And I, I want to say this though, because I, 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 I agree with you that that um, some of this stint comes from from religion stuff, um, and and that the, they're using religion to kind of dictate this thing. But I want to say, I, you know what I think? I, I think I think religion is an excuse in this. Uh, hmm. I, I think that. I think that these are conversations, these are hard, uncomfortable conversations 
that parents and other people have to have with kids sometimes that the kids don't want to have, the parents don't want to have. There are hard realities that people don't want to accept, that their kids are going to become sexually active at some point, probably much, much sooner than they ever wanted them to be. Um, And, you know, instead of taking a realistic approach to these things, most people and I, you know, listen, I, I, I know it's, it's headed my way at some point. And oh, yeah. so I, yeah. yeah and, and I, and it's going to be a struggle. I understand that, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people are using religion as an excuse not to have the conversation and not to, and to just say, you know what, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You know, which always works with kids. They respond great to that. Um, <laughs> and you know, that's really the, the top thing you can do is just say, you're, right. you're, you're just not doing it. Okay. Just stop it. And uh, that always works. Um, It just and I think they use it as an excuse to just avoid the conversation and then to pretend as though that you put this this moniker on it and say, well, you abstinence only. And that's the best way to do it. Then you pretend as though you've done something. Now now you've done this. Now you've solved that problem solved. We're out. See you. And. The reality is you've done you've done jack shit, really. You've You've done nothing. Yeah, so fear fear is at the root of this, and, and I think that's where yeah. you're going, and I agree with that. I think fear is at the root of it, but it's not just fear. I think you're right that, that for many people, it's uncomfortable, it's a conversation they don't want to have, and they, and they probably would opt for any easy way out. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's fear, not just of the hard conversation, but there really is a fear that is rooted in... Uh, a sort of a complex matrix of religious things, you know, part mm-hmm. of it is, you know, well, if you have sex outside of marriage, you're going to hell. Yeah. Or yeah. if you have sex outside of marriage and you have a baby, you know, that baby is going to be a bastard or God won't, you know, favor mm-hmm. the baby or lo- or some craziness like that. Um, the, you know, there's also, I think, um, I think honestly, that there are a lot of adults who have not found peace with their own sexuality. Oh, certainly. 100%. And there's fear yeah. because of that. Yeah. And that absolutely. also is is rooted in maybe the conflict that they may have with their own religious value system, mm-hmm. but the reality of their their inner lives in terms of what they're thinking and how they're feeling in terms of their own sexuality, whether they're heterosexual or not. Uh, you know, I'm talking about just across the board and also, um, you know, some guilt, some shame that might yeah. be residual yeah. from things that they have done or maybe still doing. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I, I think all of that, you, you, you ball up that whole big ball of, mm-hmm. of, of shame. <laughs> You know, and that, I mean, listen, it's, it, you're right. It's, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, I think that, um, if, if it were just a matter of, of straight up facts, mm-hmm. then we would have very easy, uh, access to contraceptives everywhere and yeah. for kids. And, and we, we know, a thousand percent right now. There, there is there is no reason to study it any further. We can look at the hard numbers and the hard data that when you have uh, available contraception and you have quality sex education, the fact based sex education about what happens and what's going on there that explains things to these kids from an early age so they know what's going on. 
you lower teen pregnancy rates in some cases by as much as 70 percent. Mm. I mean, it, dude, it, it ain't. I mean, it's it's not just like a well, you lower them by ten percent. No, I mean, you cut out way more than half of, of what's going on, and mm. it's it's absurd how how we still treat it this way just because of the holdups of a few people uh, that are involved in this, and that's 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 legitimately all it is. You're not mm. you're not harming kids in any way to explain to them the reality of a of a bodily function that's going to control their lives for God knows at least their, <laughs> you know, their high yeah. school years, you know, yeah. I mean, really it will. And, and just, yeah. you know, the, it's just, I, if, if you had a kid that when they turned 12 or 13 years old was all of a sudden going to be unable to control themselves around hamburgers, you'd have a conversation <laughs> about not eating so many damn hamburgers, you know, and you'd give them the medication that controlled the hamburger usage or consumption. You know what I mean? <laughs> but we're not, we're not doing it. And it's just, it's just idiotic the way we, uh, the way we handle things. I mean, it just, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, but you know, this is these, these poor folks over there. Listen, if y'all can help them out, yeah, you know, give them some, I, and, and they didn't, she didn't ask me for this, but you know, help, help those people out at, uh, at the campaign for, for adolescent sexual health, because mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to do good work. They really, mm-hmm. really are. They really care a lot. Um, and the people on the board are some of the best people that we have in the state. Uh, they're, they're the professionals that, that you go and see and that try to make the, the world a little bit better place. Um, uh, one other thing before we before we slide out to the break and, and get our guests in here. Uh, the AHSAA right. changed a rule that we yeah. uh, that we both said should be changed and we mm-hmm. both predicted would be changed at some point. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so the, uh, the Alabama High School Athletic Association, uh, after... All of the hubbub over what happened with uh, some of my people, uh, uh, young people that attend the Oakwood um, Oakwood uh, Academy, uh, Oakwood University Academy, um, and that's not the right name. But what is what is it? Oakwood just Academy. Oakwood Academy, right? Just Oakwood. Yeah, Academy? I think it's just Oakwood Academy. Yeah, I should know. I mean, it's not like I didn't go to Oakwood University <laughs> right there on the same <laughs> campus, and, and then ah, I'm not well, a you know, Oakwood Church. Yeah, but as you said many times, fuck them kids. Uh, so go ahead. <laughs> 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 oh wait, maybe maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but so they finally have done. And you were you were I think you were the the really the first advocate of this. You said you know they just should change the rule. There's you know why why do you have a rule that won't you know accommodate you know the kids? This is about yeah. the kids. You yes. know, it's not about the adults. It's about the kids and giving them an opportunity. Just make it easy for them to do it. That's all. That's not real complicated. And after all the hemming and hawing and saying what they couldn't do and why they couldn't do it, they've done it. Yes. Uh, it was so dumb. I mean, it, 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 you could see it from a thousand miles away that this was mm-hmm. going to be the ultimate end of this thing. Mm-hmm. And it, if they would have just said, oh, y'all want to swap? Okay, swap. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's all because this whole yeah. thing came up during the high school basketball playoffs, uh, and they Oakwood had made it to the finals of the region. Uh, they played a game that was early in the day, and because of their religious beliefs, they needed to have the game after sunset. Um, mm-hmm. And 
you know, they they had a team had other teams that were playing games after sunset. They were like, yeah, sure, let us play the early games so we can get our asses back home and watch some football or right. whatever basketball or whatever. And right. yeah, and ever everybody was going to be happy. And and the HSAA just took a stamp like, no way. You know, it was just so it was so idiotic. Just I mean, you could have just solved this whole thing and nobody yeah. would have ever known about it if they were just like, oh oh yeah, sure, change. You know, it was already worked out. That's the yeah. thing. It was already it was, worked out between Oakwood Adventist. Academy and the other and the yeah. other the other two schools affected. It was already worked out. They yeah, had, it was good. Everybody was happy. Everybody yeah. was happy with it, yeah. and it just and but you know and when they when they went this way with it though because of the HSA's history in and not playing games on Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being very restrictive with Sunday play, which mm-hmm. you know their previous executive director, not Savarese, but the guy before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Dan Washburn uh, had, had said had gone on record blocking Hoover from playing in a in a game in Ohio on Sunday because uh, you know that's the Sabbath and we don't play on the Sabbath. I mean, <laughs> you can't say that and then you know, I mean, come on, man, what are we even doing out here? Uh, it was so apparent the way this was going to end up, and it was so dumb the whole way. It was so dumb, and I just kept telling them, please, just stop this. What are you yeah. doing? Yeah. But you know, well, so- and, and see, even what you just said—that that description of how it went down—is why I think Oakwood actually decided to sue mm-hmm. because they believe, I think, and I don't—I can't really speak for them because even though I'm a member of that church and that community, I haven't talked to the people involved in, in quite a while about this. But I'm assuming that they believe that there was a bit of religious discrimination in there that was beyond, that was really rooted in doctrinal differences. Because, you know, you you said Sunday's the Sabbath. Well, we say Saturday is the Sabbath, you know? And it really doesn't, I mean, in the final analysis to me as as an individual Christian, uh, I think, you know, however a person is convicted to worship, you know, they should do that. If it's yeah. if it's on Sunday, fine. Worship God on Sunday in a particular way. If it's on Saturday, as I do, fine, do that. Yeah. But uh but there certainly shouldn't be a a a, a you know an internal effort to discriminate against somebody because of their religious beliefs. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I will say, I will say I think Oakwood was a little wrong. Uh, in this uh, as well, mm-hmm. I felt like the path that they should have that they should have taken was one where they applied for membership, and then when it was not granted because of their faith, they should have sued at that point. Mm-hmm. But what they did instead was uh, is they applied for membership, and then they signed an agreement saying that yes. they would never challenge any sort of ruling that, that, that if it came up, they would bow mm-hmm. out of whatever tournament they were in. And then the first time it came up. You know, they, uh, yeah, they had this yeah. problem. Now, let me, that, and, and since I'm a that community, Josh, let me say, mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. Um, uh, I don't think that should have, uh, and this happened under the previous principle, not the current principle. Yeah. It was astounding to me when I found out that the previous principle had, had uh, agreed to this because I'm thinking, well, how in the world are you going to do that yeah. And then keep the the religious beliefs that you say you have. It just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, he, ne- he never should have. And that's my point here is not that they should have just went quietly or anything else, or that the HSA was right. The the, the my point is is mm-hmm. that the HSA was always wrong 
in this, mm-hmm. and that they should have challenged it from the very front of this thing and mm-hmm. saying your the your religious beliefs that you're upholding on these Sunday things are no different than our religious beliefs over here, and you can't deny us entry into this right. organization based upon those things. And right. that's that you're was exactly the right. only reason they were trying to deny them entry into the HSAA because they had they had done that they they wouldn't let them mm-hmm. in, and even when they did, they put them on a probationary status for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're I mean, exactly right. You're exactly yeah. right. So they, everybody was wrong. But at the end of the day, everything's going to get itself worked out. Uh, I hate mm-hmm. it. I hate it for those kids, though, that didn't get to play in that finals game. Yeah. Um, and and because that was always wrong. And they somebody should have just said, I mean, come on. At the end of the day, my God, it's a basketball game. Let the kids play the damn basketball game. And exactly. everybody move move along with it. You're not hurting anything. It's not like you had to move a mountain to let them play. Exactly. All right. All right. Uh, let's get out of here. We come back. Uh, we've. We've got good guests for you. You want to to pay attention to this interview? Uh, We'll be back in a minute. Alabama Politics This Week. I'm David Person with Alabama Politics This Week. You know, you listen to me and Josh every week, and we have a blast as we talk about Alabama politics and culture, and as we interview newsmakers and journalists about Alabama politics and culture. Thanks for your support of this great podcast, and I hope that you will continue to not only listen, but to share it with your friends and also give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to it. Thanks a lot. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics This Week. Uh, Josh Moon, David Person. We're happy now uh, to have with us a, a couple of guests uh, who are um, involved in a case that could dramatically alter you know, where we go as a state. Um, and I, I don't think there's any other lesser way to put that, uh, because I think it's a very important case, uh, and it, it, because it involves uh, basic voting rights, uh, and it is uh, Milligan versus Merrill, as I think the, the official title of this, but it's essentially redistricting for Alabama, and it's about the, uh, the creation of a second minority district in the state, congressional minority district. Uh, we have one which is the best... <laughs> Is the is the best district we have in our state uh, has the best representative anyway, and Terry Sewell uh, by far uh, the most active and uh, and most progressive and uh, and hardest working uh, Congressperson that we have, and so we would like to create another one of those if we could, uh, and uh, and I think that uh, we we have some ideas of of where that might go and how things might happen with that, but uh, we have with us now Davin R- Rossborough. Uh, who's an attorney uh, with ACLU, uh, who is uh, one of the plaintiffs in the case, or one of the, the attorneys uh, that, are, that are leading in this case, and also a plaintiff, uh, Letitia Jackson, has joined us. Uh, and I believe, Letitia, you're from Dothan, correct? I am. Right. So, and, born and, I and guess, raised. Born, born and raised. And I think that's where most people assume that a, a second minority district would 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 likely be created uh, is in that general area. Although, you know, with the, the people that create our maps, 
who knows uh, where, where it might be created, right? Um, so I guess, Davin, let, let's start with you, if we could. Um, uh, I, I guess just kind of give people a, an overview of what the case is, because I don't know that a lot of people necessarily understand. I think they've heard about it, but but maybe they don't necessarily understand kind of what's going on. Uh, just an overview of the case and where things stand and what's going to happen you know, in, the, in the coming few days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having us on. So uh, this case was, uh, you know, every 10 years, uh, states need to redistrict all of their bodies, including congressional districts based on the new census and the population change. So um, in 2021, uh, after the new census data came out, um, you know, there was once again a continuing trend of white population declining in Alabama. Um, and uh, black people and people of color increasing as a relative proportion. Um, and uh, but Alabama pretty much enacted, um, you know, they made some small changes, um, but they enacted um, a congressional plan that continues the historical pattern of cracking the city of Montgomery and the black belt into multiple different congressional districts. Um, and meanwhile, um, packing um, a higher number of African-American voters than necessary to elect preferred candidates into one district, District 7. Um, and of course, that district was only created because of litigation under the Voting Rights Act itself in the early 90s. There, there were no districts since Reconstruction until then in which uh, Black voters in Alabama could elect candidates of choice. And so this this is a lawsuit in which uh, brought um, by the legal teams at the Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU and ACLU of Alabama, um, Hogan Lovells and Wiggins Child, on behalf of Ms. Jackson, uh, three other individuals, and the NAACP of Alabama and Greater Birmingham Ministries um, to challenge the failure to create another district in which uh, Black Alabamians can elect a candidate of choice. Um, and the, the, there was sort of multiple parts of it, but the, the core claim, which was heard by uh, a panel of three judges, um, um, two, two of whom sit in Alabama and were recently appointed to the court by uh, President Trump, um, was uh, under provision called Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it's basically that um, the state, the, the, the way the lines are drawn um, artificially dilute the voting power of Black Alabamians um, in the way that they draw the lines through the basically the devices of sort of cracking, fracturing across districts and packing that I mentioned before. And, um, you know, I, when when these new maps were passed, we um, had a almost two week long hearing in January and the judges found that it wasn't really a close question that we were likely to prevail and, and ordered the state to uh, draw, get the first shot at drawing a new map. And of course, instead of doing that, they took the case right to the United States Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court put the court's ruling on hold, meaning that the maps, discriminatory maps that Alabama passed are going to be the maps we have for these uh, 2022 elections. Um, but then they also took the case um, to hear the case. And, and they said that there was, which we disagree with, that there's confusion um, among states in, in, in how <laughs> this aspect of the Voting Rights Act worked and that we should decide what's the proper standard. And so. Um, um, you know, we're going to be in, in D.C. next week on Tuesday, the second day of the new term, 
Uh, Duell Ross from Legal Defense Fund is going to be arguing as our, my co-counsel in the case and is going to be arguing on behalf of Ms. Jackson and our other clients um, that uh, <laughs> that the, the, the court below got it right um, and that the Supreme Court should make radical changes to the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, listen, man, there's a lot of rants I could go on <laughs> right here, uh, uh, that I would love to go on uh, about uh, what the confusion and how this is going to cause so many big problems. But in the meantime, we'll just disenfranchise, you know, 25 percent of the voting base of Alabama while we uh, uh, we avoid this confusion that nobody is really confused about. But uh, instead of me ranting, let me Miss Jackson, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about you know how you got involved uh, in, in this case and. And, you know, just kind of what you feel about, you know, going to the, you know, to your case with with your name on it, going to the United States Supreme Court at this point. Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for um, highlighting this case, uh, because it is very important, not only for the state of Alabama, but for um, the rest of the country and and our democracy in general. Um, I have been involved with voting rights and um, civic engagement for pretty much most of my life um, from my, I mean, at, and when I, I mean that literally from a little girl mm-hmm. um, going around um, talking about it and, and, and engaging and, and involving and educating. My mom took it very seriously when she got the chance to vote. And after the Voting Rights Act in 1965, she instilled in us uh, the responsibility that comes with that right and what happened, what had to happen for us to be able to get that right. So for me, it is a part of my DNA. It is a part of of who I am and uh, whose shoulders I stand on. So that is why I got involved in the case. I got involved in the case because it's critically important for us not to lose any political power. Um, And we have, as you mentioned earlier, it's actually a 27% um, portion of the voting age population in Alabama that's Black. and we with one out of seven congressional seats, that's only about 14%. So we're not asking for anything that um, we have not earned and and is not deserved and that we have not worked hard and fought for. We're just asking for fairness. We're asking for the rule of law um, that as it is described in section two of the Voting Rights Act to stand. Because if it doesn't stand, then our democracy as we know it now will be forever changed. It will not only affect Alabama, but it will affect every Southern state in the country who is chomping at the bit to do exactly what's being being done in Alabama and have already done it in, in, a, in a number of ways. So for me, this case is about our very survival, our very our opportunity to be able to elect representatives who know us, understand us, who are are from our communities that will represent our interests, our family's interest in the United States Congress. When I need to know what's going on with the federal government, with federal dollars, how federal dollars are coming to our communities, how to access those federal dollars, I have to go to um, Congresswoman Sewell because my congressional member um, and I am I'm, I'm a political junkie, so I am actively involved all the time. But my congressional member, for the first time since this case started, reached out to us, to me directly, inviting me, um, not me specifically, but just because I'm on a voter list, but inviting me to um, a, a town hall that was that's being held in areas that people 
that aren't political junkies like me would not know about, would not be able to get to, do not frequent, um, and would have to have you know, uh, the ability to get there because it's not anywhere near our communities. So my representative doesn't represent me. As a matter of fact, my representative doesn't even acknowledge that I am a part of his constituency. I want a representative that I can go to that's going to help represent my community and my family and the people that I care about. So, Ms. Jackson, let me ask you a question, because I I mean, as an African-American in this state, um, I've lived here for 41, 42 years. I share your concerns and I appreciate your passion. However, I do know that there are some people who will say to what you just said, they will say, well, that's not a byproduct of race or race discrimination. That's a byproduct of partisanship. That's, that's just the reality that if you are a Democrat in a district that's represented by a Republican, and in a state that is dominated by Republicans, you're not going to have the same. Uh, you, in theory, yes, you should have the same level of access to information and services and all of that. That's indisputable. But you won't necessarily feel the same level of representation because you're not in sync with that party or that party is not in sync with you. What would you say to that? Well, what I would say to that is this. Um, this experiment we call democracy is about representing the totality of the people that are, are in your district. Whether you agree with me or not, whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican, I am your constituent. And what my concerns, my issues, the issues of my family, my community should be a part of your agenda. It should be a part of what you think about, talk about, do. Whether or not you will do anything for it, you need to at least know it, acknowledge it, be aware of it. And on some level, help to represent it to others, whether you agree with it or not. You're supposed to represent me as your voter. I mean, you don't know if I voted for you or not. You don't know if, a, if as a Democrat, because I live in a, in, a, in, a, in a county that's a sea of red sometimes. And I have, I will say this, I have voted for Republicans before because I, 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 I don't consider myself just a staunch Democrat. I consider myself an independent first and foremost, because I vote for the, the, the representative that I think is going to, number one, be effective, and number two, represent my interests. So I will give you a perfect example. Well, I won't, I won't call any names, but I have, I have worked with representative senators, uh, state senators, um, and even uh, some, some state um, House members that uh, are not of my political ilk, but are good people that believe in our, our democracy, in our country, that believe in fairness, and that will represent all interests of the people that they that they that are that they are that are their constituents. So what I say to that is um, we can continue down this road of pure partisanship, or we can we can come together and save our country and do the right thing and work for what's best for the totality of our state, not just for a few people, because because the reality of the situation is right. the, the tide is changing and it's going to continue to change. Yeah. Before I forget, Miss Jackson, I got to I got to say something. Uh, Josh, give me a little bit of personal privilege here. Yeah. I have family in Dothan. I have. Uh, oh, really? I do. I have a, a couple of cousins down there and I have an uncle. I've told Josh this story before, but I have an uncle who had to leave the city of Mariana, Florida. Uh, to in order to not be killed by a police officer wow. 
who was angry at him because of uh, a dispute over a woman. And he settled that uncle. We called him Uncle Mop. Uncle Mop had to settle in Dothan. That's where he escaped to. And my sole childhood memory of Uncle Mop is after uh, a visit to Mariana when I was about five or six with my mom, uh, is Uncle Mop leaving us waving and walking down the street headed back to Dothan under the cloak of night so that he would not be accosted by this police officer. So um, uh, I I have very... Uh, I have a very unusual tie, perhaps, and very strong ties emotionally to Dothan. So uh, I'm so glad that you're with us today and that you are involved in this process. Yeah, hey, I, and I, I wanted com- to say, it, it's, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I, I no, wanted no, no, to say, ahead, too, um, uh, you know, I would also say to, to follow up with what Ms. Jackson said, um, mm-hmm. Terry Sewell is a good answer to your question. I guarantee you that if you ask most Republicans in Terry Sewell's district, whether or not they feel disenfranchised by her representation of them uh, and whether or not she is unfair to them. I don't think any one of them would say that she is, that she does not listen to them, that she does not contact them, especially in the manner in which the representative, which currently represents the second district, uh, behaves himself. Um, And so, you know. No, no, I I think you're right. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I mean, to add, to add on here, I mean, the interesting thing is some of this came out during during our hearing and during the case too. And right, I mean, both Democrats, you know, Democrats controlled Alabama for quite a while too. And both Democrats, even in recent history, and Republicans have drawn racially gerrymandered maps. Um, mm-hmm. And we see even in when we have expert witnesses, which we had in this case, look at perform analysis how how to within a primary election within a Democratic primary, within a, public, a Republican primary, is there still what we call racially polarized voting? In other words, are, it's, is it just a function of Democrat versus Republican, or is there something racial going on? And the evidence that comes out is there is something racial be above and beyond party affiliation. Um, you know, we see that in a number of races. Um, you know, in 2008, uh, uh, more white Democrats voted for uh, John McCain than uh, Barack Obama. You know, that, that that's yeah. it. So, yeah. you know, I think it, it goes above and beyond um, just, well, you know. Well, we know, I mean, Davin, we know that race and politics, race and economics are inextricably linked throughout this country. And I think in very intense ways in this state and and the other uh, former Confederate states as well, I would argue. So, yeah, I, I agree 100% with that. Uh, I, I tell you one thing, though, uh, Letitia and Davin, that I'm concerned about, and that is that it seems to me that, that, that the fight that you are engaged in, with is a, which is a worthy fight, but it is a fight about trying to get back to zero as opposed to really getting to where we need to be. Because the reality is, if 27% of of eligible voters in in Alabama are African American, but we only see as um, as Letitia pointed out fourteen percent representation. Then we're not even trying to get. I mean, we're we're trying to get, um, you know, a sliver still. What would really amount to just a sliver of what we really should have numerically 
And the only reason we even have to couch it in racial terms in reality is because of some of the things that we've alluded to already. Uh, One thing in particular is that when it comes to race, when it comes to, to making a choice about candidates, unfortunately, most white people are going to vote for the white candidate. That's what, I, that's what I see in the American experience. Now, some people will say, well, black people do it too. And, and yeah, to some extent, black people do it. But believe me, we have a whole hell of a lot more of experience <laughs> voting for white candidates mm-hmm. than white people do for black candidates. And, and that's because we often have had no other choice other than to choose between white candidates. And so mm-hmm. then we're trying to figure out which candidate is going to be most aligned with our interests. And that hasn't always been easy. And sometimes we've had to, to basically vote for the lesser of evils. I mean, Letitia, is that, is that, do you, would you say that that parallels and sums up your experience? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. Um, I think that um, when, when we're looking at this, um, this situation, Black voters, historically will, you know, we, we will look at the candidate that, as you say, that is, that's, that are best aligned with our issues. And if that candidate doesn't happen not to look like us, it will not stop us from voting for that candidate. Um, and we, we don't have that happening a lot on the other side. And, and I think that, um, you know, I think that, that if we were to be honest with ourselves, um, Many times, and, 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 and quite frankly, the, the other side of that, David, is that we don't always necessarily vote just for the Black candidate because they're Black. You know, there are Black candidates that I have not voted for because yeah. I don't, they don't align with my issues and my interests. So Same it's here. not for us. It's not for us a racial thing. It's about, number one, it's about political power. Number two, it's about representation of my issues and my family and my community. And that's where we have to keep the, keep the discussion. Because when we go off into the discussion that's, that is anything other than that, they're just red herrings. Yes. I, I, Josh, let me just ask Letitia one other question. Sure. I, I'm so curious about you because you said that you've been in this battle just about all of your life. And you obviously are very well versed on the topic. Tell us a little bit about Letitia Jackson. I mean, what, you know, what, what do you do and... You know, what's your what's your background? So I um, manage I'm the president and CEO of um, a strategic consulting firm, Tendic LLC. I we specialize in public policy advocacy, training and technical assistance, capacity building for nonprofit organizations, primarily small to medium sized nonprofit organizations. And I also am a consultant with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where I manage a grant portfolio that is, that is focused on uh, building capacity in um, Southern states that we call, quote unquote, tobacco nation uh, to reduce inequities um, around that issue. I um, went to an HBCU, graduated from actually Dothan High School. So I, moved, I moved away, went to college. I worked as a labor union organizer. I was political director for California Labor Federation. I worked for Mayor Bill Campbell and his uh, administration in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've managed um, 
several congressional, uh, several campaigns, state, congressional, U.S. Senate, um, managed and or been a part of, I was a part of um, a number of um, presidential races, Clinton Gore, Torricelli, I was a con- con- coordinator for that race in New Jersey. So I've been around the block a time or two. Um, my passion is, um, my passion is, 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 is really um, voter engagement and, and helping communities, individuals and communities, not only understand and recognize their power, but actually use that power to impact their communities. So yeah. that's kind of a, that's kind of a quick and dirty, a little longer than an elevator speech, but. Yeah. Well, that's a, a damn good plaintiff. I can tell you that. That's a, that's a good plaintiff <laughs> yeah. for a voting rights case. I guess. <laughs> you know? yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and what Ms. Jackson just spoke to with her background, I mean, that I think that answers part of the other question too is like about this lawsuit right and aren't we just getting to <laughs> back to you know the the bare minimum of where it should be and you know I, that's that's what I do I'm a litigator I, I'm a voting rights litigator full time and that has a role to play but that's why I mean that is one small piece of the puzzle and it's not litigation is not going to get us everywhere um and Ms. Jackson our other individual plaintiffs um who work with a couple of work with Alabama Forward um, you know, they are doing the hard work that is going to, you know, <laughs> go be- above and beyond what litigation can do. I mean, I say this as a litigator, I have a limited role to play. It's something that helps a piece of the puzzle, I hope. But um, it, it, it's people like Ms. Jackson that are doing doing the work every day um, to, to really make the hard-earned gains. And I forgot to mention also that I'm also the uh, convener of the South Alabama Black Women's Roundtable, which is a program of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. And we have been involved, um, you know, for decades, uh, educating and and involving um, uh, and getting organizing around voter engagement and civic engagement. Uh, And we uh, we target primarily Black women because, as we know, Black women will always take the household with them when they go to vote. So we make sure that we and, and the issues that are important to Black women are also important to the rest of our community. So the other thing I'd like to say is the, the importance of this case is about Alabama and Alabama's greatness and what we can be. We cannot be the great state that we, we can be unless we are using all of the talent and all of the resources and all of, all of the things that we all as a community have to offer. So if you're, on, if you're just mar- marginalizing an entire population that has so much uh, rich history in the state and so much talent and, and, and passion to give to, st- to the state to help make the state can be the great state that we know it can be, then we're really just not um, giving ourselves a chance to be what we should be and to arise to the occasion of what this country needs right now. So we're actually um, getting in our own way, I think, as far as you know, being the last in everything or, or fighting Mississippi to be the last in everything, <laughs> you know, I mean, we could be, a, we can be a great state and we, we are a great state, but we could be better. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. D- diversity and inclusion has never uh, has never hurt anybody, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, it, it really it hadn't it has never failed to make any, anybody better. Um, uh, you know, I, I know y'all. We, we've kept you uh, for a while. But I, I wanted the last thing, um, uh, Davin, before we, we, we get out of here. Um, it, cause it does, you know, I said you know, before we started this recording that it looks like you're at least to the outward person. And, and I know trying to rely on this Supreme court is probably pretty dangerous. Uh, but yeah. it, you, you get, you do have some Trump appointees who agreed, you know, that this, I mean, and I don't know what better benchmark there could be than a couple of Trump appointees saying, Oh yeah, that's too racist for even us. Uh, but you know, that <laughs> I, I feel like it, it's headed towards success. Um, you know, in, in this, and there's going to have to be a second district drawn. If that is the case, if you're ultimately successful here, what what happens at that point? You know, where 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 do we go? You know, what, when do these new maps take effect? Uh, when when will there be a second district drawn in? Sure. So uh, this could happen in a few different ways. I won't exhaust every single possibility, but in the Supreme Court. Um, couple of different things could happen. One is the Supreme Court could say, okay, the court below got it right. Um, you know, and that would probably be a decision coming out in spring, very early summer at the latest. Um, and at which point then Alabama legislature, you know, the, the joint committee gets the first shot at redrawing the map in accordance with those guidelines. Mm-hmm. Or the Supreme Court could say, ah, well, you know, we think that we got to change the standard here. And, um, you know, so we're sending, you know, this was just up on a preliminary hearing anyway. So we're sending it back. And then ultimately, you know, they'll give us whatever guidance we need. We go to trial uh, in the case, um, you know, at at some point, maybe next year. And similar process that the legislature is always going to get the first shot um, to draw the new maps, but in accordance with um, the 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 guidance the court gives um mm-hmm. if they fail to do it if they do a bad job of it or they just say we're not going to do it then the court itself would appoint somebody to draw the maps um but if it's like what the court said before it may not even be um it may be a second district in which um african americans are a majority or it might be another district where um you know that there's not a majority but enough to have a fair chance to compete and win, you know, in, in any given election. And that, so, um, hopefully our, our whole hope would be that, that whatever it would be, would be in place before the next cycle. Um, that's our goal, certainly in the litigation, but there's a little bit of that that's out of our hands. Yeah. So we're going to have to deal with that more on Barrymore for at least another two years. Great. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's, uh, Hey, listen, guys, uh, Devin Rossborough and, and Leticia Jackson, uh, thank y'all. Thank y'all so much for, for coming in and, and spending some time and, uh, you know, breaking this yes. down and, and giving us the history that you have, Ms. Jackson, with everything. And, um, you know, it, this, it's, it's really been informative. I think it, it's going to help a lot of people better understand what's going on and what's at stake. And, uh, and that's always a good thing. So I really appreciate you guys coming in. It's, it's, it's been a great service, I think. Yes. Like to just add one thing. I was trying to talk, but my my mic, mic was on mute, and then I accidentally <laughs> cut myself off. But um, first of all, I just I just like to say that I agree with you. Um, uh, and 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 if this case is settled on the merits of the case, mm-hmm. and um, 
the rule of law and the, the, the language in the Voting Rights Act, we, we win hands down. So we all know that there are political, political considerations, um, but I, it is my hope and my belief that we will, political considerations will not be the rule of day, that the rule of law and fairness will be um, the winner in this case. And, and, and winning this case will be about the rule of law and about fairness and yeah, about well. democracy. That's, uh, that's, that's, uh, we all hope so too. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have, I have zero faith in our, uh, in our, our counterparts on the other side of this, that, uh, that they're going to follow along with that as well. Uh, uh, though, I think our country and the state would be a whole lot better off if we just relied on those things. Uh, that's, uh, but listen, uh, again, thank y'all for coming in, uh, and spending the time, and and we do really appreciate it. We're gonna we're gonna have to yes. slide out uh, here. Uh, that is as Davin Rossborough and Letitia Jackson uh, trying to do God's work uh, in the state and help everybody out. We're gonna come back in just a minute. Alabama politics this week. If you would uh, like an opportunity to interact with us here at uh, Alabama Politics this week, uh, we've got a great way for you to do that. Uh, shoot a question over to apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Anything about Alabama politics you want to know about, uh, I don't know, what, what everybody likes to drink or uh, where everybody likes to hang out or you know, whatever, whatever your question may be. Uh, what chances the Democrats might have uh, in the uh, the upcoming midterm elections? Uh, shoot us a question over at apwproducer at gmail.com. apwproducer at gmail.com. Thanks. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person, and that, uh, I told you, good interview. It, uh, I mean, I I tell you I, as I, I told David I was I was worried mm-hmm. that when they they told us we were going to have a plaintiff on be able to get a plaintiff on with us for that lawsuit I was worried of what a plaintiff in a voting rights case or redistricting case I should say not right. just a voting rights case but a redistricting case what they were going to be able to say you know that would be that would contribute to the to the conversation but. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> so what the hell I know. Yeah, Miss Jackson was on point. She yeah. she was very well versed in this, yeah, and yeah. when you heard her resume, then you understood. Oh, that, yeah, that explains exactly. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there there are, there are plaintiffs, and then there's Miss Jackson. <laughs> and so I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. I'm yeah. for real. Uh, uh, all right, let's. Um, I, let, we're gonna have because we ran long on both segments, so we're gonna we're gonna try to get out of here fairly quickly. Um, and, and so we're going to go right to our right wing nut, um, and, and it'll open up a conversation for us a little bit. And our right wing nut is Kay Ivey for the way, uh, she has responded to the prison strike, uh, by basically saying, you know, such demands from the prisoners will never fly in Alabama, uh, you know, and, Hmm. um, 
Mm. You know, and it was very dismissive of them, very dismissive of of their demands. And and I'll say this, I'll say this uh, in in somewhat of a defense of of her. She's she's right, and and when I say her, I really mean her office because I'm not even sure Kay Ivy is aware of any of this. But uh, they <laughs> they sent out a statement, uh, and um, they're right in that some of the demands of the prisoners will requ- would require legislative action. All right. Mm. And that Kay Ivey couldn't unilaterally just say, okay, we're going to stop doing this and this. And, uh, you know, like, for example, uh, we're going to stop the habitual offender program. You know, that's mm. not something that the head of the uh, department of corrections or Steve Marshall or Kay Ivey could just do that. You're going to need somebody to, to do that. And so I, I really wish that the demands overall, and I understand they're just demands. And so it's a negotiating kind of tactic uh, on behalf of the prisoners. And so, uh, but th- those things are not going to be able to do that said, she was so dismissive of this. I don't, I don't understand. And to and to give a bigger background here, what we're talking about, in case people don't understand, don't know this, because I just went into this assuming people did, is that the prisoners at Alabama prisons all over the state are currently on strike. They are not performing their duties in the prison. Uh, they have gone on strike, and if you are aware in any way of how prisons work, prisoners run a lot of things at prisons. They essentially keep prisons going, uh, mm-hmm. and without them. They are in trouble big, bigly. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know, back to Kiabi, I don't know how, given what we know from the Department of Justice, given what we know just from a daily basis of living here and knowing what, what's happening in our prisons, and especially if you're the governor or the attorney general of this state and knowing what's happening, I don't know how you could be so dismissive of them and and what's going on and the fact and 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 pretend as though they are being unrealistic because they are upset over the way that they have been treated over the conditions of the prisons over the uh, the way that uh Alabama has acknowledged their suffering um i i just and, and and what what really bothers me, what really bothers me a lot about this is when she says over and over and over again that this is public safety. Alabama's going to take public safety first, you know, uh, and this ain't it. This ain't public safety. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, you, you can pretend as though locking up some dangerous people is public safety, but that's that's not it's not it's not public safety it's it's not it's one sliver of the function of public safety mm-hmm. because public safety is taking that person who's doing bad things and then putting them away away from society for a period of time that we have determined is necessary um and while he is in that place that we've put them away from society rehabilitating that person very in some cute. way, shape or form yeah, that's very so cute. that when that person then reenter society, mm-hmm. which 99% of these people are going to do, mm-hmm. that person is a functioning member of that society right. and can contribute 
and can be successful in life and no longer be a dangerous person. So you're missing 90% of the shit you're supposed to be doing in public safety. In the meantime, uh, you're creating, she, you know, she under her purview, and, and I understand that, you know, some of these problems go back, you know, they, they precede her, but certainly at this particular juncture, you know, she's responsible because she's seated in the governor's mansion. Right. Um, so under her purview, we have uh, a prison system that has been deemed to be uh, very problematic in terms of, of uh, violating the constitutional rights of prisoners. You know, we have prisoners who, as you said, are striking. They're not just striking for the hell of it. They're striking because they believe they have been uh, subjected to inhumane treatment and and subjected to inhumane conditions. And based on the reports that come out of the prison and the findings of the Justice Department, these prisoners are 100% right. They're 100% right. So mm-hmm. they are striking in terms of the work. They're striking. Some of them are strike, have been striking and uh, going on hunger strikes. And, um, and I just feel, Josh, and this is why I think it is appropriate for the chief executive officer of the state. Let's, let's even forget about who the person is for a minute. Just, just whoever sits in that seat. It is appropriate for that person to be the right wing nut of the week. Because they are presiding over a system that is perpetuating, um, I think, uh, a gross display of inhumanity towards its prisoners, mm-hmm. which is even more striking when this is also the state where people love to, including our, you know, uh, our right wing conservative politicians who are uh, who dominate the state in terms of elected office who love to talk about going to church, who love to mm-hmm. talk about being Christians and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and they're more than happy to, to tout their Christian faith, you know, until it comes to something like this. And then they're more than happy to be, you know, just, um, I think, dismissive and, 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 uh, and I would argue immoral when it comes to the treatment of people who are behind bars. One of the key things that Jesus says in Matthew, I think it's 28, that he says when he talks about the end of time is he says, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And because you didn't visit me, that is a problem. You know, at the end of time, that scenario that, that anybody who's read their Bible is familiar with, um, and it's not just about visiting. I mean, I think that's, I mean, Jesus mentions one thing there in the Bible, uh, but it's really about more than just visiting. I, I would say that's a metaphor for caring, for yeah. being concerned about the human and seeing prisoners as people who have value just because they're locked up, just because they've been convicted of a crime, maybe guilty of serious crimes. They're no less human than the rest of us. Yep. Yeah, no, you're you're 100 right, and uh, what I want, you know what though? Here, here's the thing: I think a lot of people miss here is is not only are are the are those folks no less human than us. Okay, at this particular point, <clears throat> those people, most of them there, are no more criminal than the people who are now imprisoning them. 
Okay, because Mm -hmm. when you put people in such conditions that the Department of Justice have said are unconstitutional. All right. Mm -hmm. That is a violation of the law of the basic Mm -hmm. laws of this country. Mm -hmm. Not only that, when you continue to ignore the laws about paroles and pardons, as we are doing in this state, that is a violation of the law as well. Uh, and when you continue to keep people locked up because it's good for the economy of the state, which is what you're doing with a lot of the work release prisoners that are on work farms out there because it's cheap labor for everybody to use. And you want to keep these folks locked up because if you let them out, then who we're going to, have to start paying them a full wage out there. And by full wage, I mean half of what they should be making under a, under the minimum wage laws that we currently have. That also is against the damn law, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So you're you have people. And it's really, only a couple of steps away from. In fact, not, probably not even a couple of steps away. It's probably almost the same damn thing as convict leasing, which used yeah. to happen in the nineteen. Oh, absolutely, it is the early part of the twentieth century. Yeah, you're just leasing them to yourself. Locked up for just spitting on the sidewalk or some some you know something that would be really less less than a misdemeanor today. Yes. You know, so it's it's the same spirit, same. Yes, spirit. hundred percent. And and so what we have, we've debased ourselves mm-hmm. to the point that we have no moral authority now to imprison anybody. Mm-hmm. And until we get do better at, at this, we're not going to be. I, I mean. You can continue to pretend as though this is public safety or you being tough on crime or whatever. And just because you happen to live in this state where so many people think, um, hey, hey, you know, that you don't want you don't want to be suffering. Don't do crime, you know, which ignores, obviously, addiction and all sorts of other things out there. You know, we're we're failing. Bad and bigly, and these guys um, and and women too. I, I assume they're they're also uh, striking mm-hmm. at Tutwiler, and and it's that they have every right to be doing this. Um, it, as a matter of fact, it's it's really surprising to me that there has not been more violence um, that that's come about. And that let me be one hundred percent clear: y'all don't do any violence, please. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, please don't do that. And, um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I think every, I, I support what, what you're doing with the strike a hundred, uh, a thousand percent, but, but please don't let there be any violence, uh, in that. And I, I do not support what the state has done in response. That's cruelty. Uh, in cutting meals back on these right. guys uh, even further than what they are already cut back on them. Um, and it's, it, it's we've got to be I don't we've got to be better about this. And, and I, 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 I swear to God, it's it, it, it drives me crazy sometimes that, that people don't care any more than they do. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. On that note, we're going to get out of here. But uh, listen, great show. I thought, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll decide what to charge you for it later. Um, and um, <laughs> but for now, it'll probably end up being free. So listen, <laughs> till next week, y'all be safe out there. Peace. Peace.